on a thousand planets and spreading out. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Good afternoon and welcome to the Fantastic Forum here on WERA 96.7 FM, Radio Arlington. I'm Ulysses E. Campbell, and for the next hour, we're going to entertain, excite, educate, and elucidate you with news, information, and exciting discussion about your favorite geeks. This is Fantastic Forum. It's our world now, and eh, we'll maybe let you hang around in it. All right, so first we have some uh, genre-related news before we get to today's discussion. So, George R.R. Martin fans, rejoice! Uh, HBO announced earlier this week that the popular sword and sorcery series Game of Thrones will be returning in April of 2019. No specific date for the premiere was given, but fans had feared that the show might not appear until mid to late summer. The series, which stars Peter Dinklage, Amelia Clark, Kit Harrington, Sophie Turner, and Maisie Williams, is based on a series of novels by celebrated science fiction and fantasy author George R.R. Martin. A Song of Ice and Fire. Season 8 is going to be the final one and promises to conclude the story that Martin began in 1996. This guy is slow as molasses in terms of getting these books out. It's, it's, it's been pretty excruciating. Anyway, also announced this week is the renewal of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on ABC TV for a seventh season. Uh, this is coming just weeks after the news. The show had been renewed for a sixth season. Uh, that series stars Ming-Na Wen, Chloe Bennett, Elizabeth Henstridge, uh, Henry Simmons. And uh, it seems that uh, Clark Gregg, who is also another one of the stars, uh, is not listed for the uh, upcoming seventh season. So uh, I don't know what that means. I don't know if there's any significance for that at all. But it's something that we noted. Also, some sad news uh, coming this week as uh, celebrated voice talent Douglas Rain, a Canadian stage actor uh, who is best known as having provided the voice for the HAL 9000 computer in Stanley Kubrick's 1968 sci-fi masterpiece 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, passed away. Um, he had also reprised the role in the sequel 2010, the year we made contact, back in 1984. But uh, he was a tremendous performer, and uh, his performance as the HAL 9000 computer is uh, sort of uh, universally remembered as uh, something that was incredibly creepy and absolutely made the film. 
Also this week, Stan Lee, uh, also known as Stanley Martin Lieber, although he had his name officially changed uh, to Stan Lee, passed away. Uh, he was 95 years old, but uh, of course, the comics writer, editor, publisher co-created countless characters uh, and put Marvel Comics on the map as uh, perhaps the definitive purveyor of, uh, shall we say, modern mythology. And we're going to be talking a little bit more about the life and legacy of Stan Lee on today's show. Uh, was going to do something else, but of course, Stan Lee passes away, and you're like, oh, well, we got to talk about this. So, uh, but first, we have the official Fantastic Forum review of the latest movie in the ongoing series, Wizarding World of uh, Harry Potter, such as it is. So, um, Crimes of Grindelwald, it is... Uh, the second in, well, depending on how you look at it, in the Fantastic Beasts series. And we've got the official FF review right now. And then we'll be back with the rest of the show. Stay tuned. Ulysses Campbell for Fantastic Forum. I was a latecomer to the wizarding world of Harry Potter. My wife and kids had been reading the books and enjoying the movies for some time before I got on board, but not wanting to be continually left out, I started reading the series. I finished the first two books without getting hooked, and so I took a break. But when I returned and read Prisoner of Azkaban, I started to understand the attraction of the boy who survived. Now, despite my admitted proclivity for watching movies and television, I have to say that I've always been one who appreciates prose more. When you read a book, there is much greater depth to everything, and you're able to get into the heads of the characters in a way that film simply doesn't permit. And so I discovered, despite the enormous success of the movies, that I liked the Harry Potter books more. I referred to the movies as Harry Potter Light. Fortunately for me, all the books and movies had come out by the time I was reading and watching, so unlike many fans, I didn't have to endure a wait between stories. But then, with the Deathly Hallows, it all came to an end. So the Fantastic Beasts prequel films, written by J.K. Rowling, were most welcome. Loosely based on a 2001 release that was essentially a textbook, the 2016 movie did well. The latest installment, Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, takes us back to the wizarding world long before the arrival of Harry Potter. In fact, if you saw the initial installment, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, you know that these stories take place even before Harry's parents arrive on the scene. But they expand on some incidents referenced in the books as the viewer learns more about the backstory of Albus Dumbledore and his friend-turned-foe, Gellert Grindelwald. And a very complex backstory it is. Creator Rowling has said in interviews that the relationship between the two master wizards is complicated. The lead character, as in the first Fantastic Beasts, is Newt Scamander, played by Eddie Redmayne. Redmayne gives a quirky performance as the magical, animal-loving wizard with whom we became acquainted in the first movie. But this isn't exactly a sequel, or even a prequel sequel. No, this movie focuses on, well, 
the crimes of Grindelwald. Gellert Grindelwald is sort of a precursor to the villainous Tom Riddle, better known as Lord Voldemort. Grindelwald is interested in advancing magic users to what he believes is their rightful place leading humanity. Johnny Depp reprises his role from Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, although he has more to do, a lot more. Depp is a phenomenal actor who gives Grindelwald real gravitas. We also get to see younger Dumbledore, played with a certain glee by Jude Law. So, what's happening here is that Grindelwald escapes his captivity at the hands of the Ministry of Magic and seeks to unite the wizards and witches to the end of conquering the world. The only wizard powerful enough to oppose Grindelwald is Dumbledore, but he says he can't fight against his old friend. Dumbledore does the next best thing by enlisting Newt Scamander to locate the key to Grindelwald's plan, Credence Barebone, played by Ezra Miller. Although Scamander is more interested in reconnecting with his buddy, Jacob Kowalski, and locating the object of his affections, Tina Goldstein, played by Dan Folger and Catherine Waterston, respectively. And along for the ride is Tina's sister, Queenie Goldstein, Alison Sudol. There is a lot happening in this movie. Rowling has developed into a great writer, and there are layers upon layers of storytelling. And she's also expanding on characters with whom we're familiar, like Dumbledore and, to a lesser degree, Newt Scamander. The cast in this movie is top shelf. In addition to heavyweights, Law and Depp, there's also Callum Turner as Newt's brother Theseus, Zoe Kravitz as Lita Lestrange, and Cornell John as Arnold Guzman. You'll also find Kevin Guthrie, Poppy Corby Tush, and Claudia Kim. Everyone turns in terrific performances. As with Fantastic Beasts, the production is artfully directed by David Yates, who keeps a steady hand amidst the constant action and activity. As audiences have come to expect from the Wizarding World, all is well done. The mini beasts are believable and relatable. They look realistic, as befits the army of animators who were credited. Special effects are a controllable element, and with all the modern effects-driven pictures, they're used in service to achieving a certain tone. The film also benefits tremendously from the wonderful score by James Newton Howard that establishes a mood for what the audience is seeing and experiencing. The skillful blending of elements allows the viewer to lose themselves in this movie, but despite that, with a runtime of 2 hours and 14 minutes, it felt just a little long to me. It's rated PG-13, but I'd still be mindful about taking children younger than 11 or so. It isn't one of the earlier Harry Potter movies, and it is darker than the initial Fantastic Beasts. But overall, a fun movie-going experience that helps you reconnect with the Harry Potter franchise. I gave it 3 stars out of 4. Ulysses Campbell for Fantastic Forum. There you go. The official Fantastic Forum review of the new movie in the Wizarding World of Harry Potter series, Crimes of Grindelwald, which is playing now at a theater near you. All right. So uh, it's time for me to introduce my guests for this show. Uh, I have in studio, uh, Julia, oh, wait, wait, weren't you... Um, the uh, well, you were the the, 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 illustrious. the illustrious Julian Lytle. That's right. 
Well, you can continue to be the illustrious Julian Lytle, my friend. I guess. And, yeah, absolutely. And we're also joined uh, via the miracle of technology. We have uh, Mike Lunsford and Roberto Ortiz. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you for Glad having me. Here. Hey. I don't get a superlative. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, I don't want you to feel left out. You can be the, uh, the redoubtable Mike Lunsford. How about that? Works for me. Ah, there you go. All right. Okay, so, of course, uh, the big news this week in the comics industry, well, comics and beyond, because uh, the influence of uh, Stan Lee uh, had uh, grown to where, um, you know, he sort of had tendrils in uh, film and television. uh, And I think it's interesting, because uh, the way this thing started out, I mean, he was a comic book writer. And actually, even before that, his uh, Martin Goodman, who was the publisher of Timely Comics, was Stan Lee's cousin's husband. <laughs> and Stan, okay. yeah, Stan apparently, um, this is like back in the 40s. Uh, he was a kid, and um, of course, uh, the, uh, the war was on and a whole bunch of stuff happening. Anyway, apparently, Martin Goodman needed somebody to act as an editor. And uh, he said, hey, can I get you until I get somebody who's old enough? And Stan wow. was like, yeah, Stan was like, okay, I can do that. <laughs> so, and, and the rest is history. Now, uh, to me, uh, it seems like the modern, I mean, as much other stuff as Stan had going on uh, before the early 1960s, when he really sort of started to become Stan Lee, uh, as the story goes, Martin Goodman was playing golf with his counterpart over at DC Comics. This was like 1961. And uh, apparently what happened was uh, DC had recently begun publishing the Justice League of America. And sales were through the roof on this thing. And so uh, Goodman came back to the uh, offices of Marvel and he said, look, I need a team of superheroes because DC has got these superheroes and they're selling books. And so uh, Stan and Jack Kirby came up with the Fantastic Four. And, um, and like I said, the rest is history. Now, also, apparently, Stan's wife, Stan's late wife, Joan, uh, had a lot to do with this also because uh, Stan had started to get real frustrated with what he was doing. And Joan apparently encouraged him to write the kind of story that he would want to read, you know. And apparently that resonated with him, and that's what led him to, uh, at least initially, uh, sort of go in the direction of characters like Spider-Man, who were non-traditional, the thing, um, you know, the... Anyway, but look, uh, so Stan Lee gets an awful lot of credit. And the first question I want to put to all of you is, is that credit deserved? Because, you know, I've been seeing on social media, people are just, you know, it's like, oh, my God, that is that, oh! you know, and um, so anyway, is is that credit deserved? Um, Julian. Oh, man, you want to start with me? <laughs> right. Oh, well, well, we don't have to. <laughs> 
<laughs> we don't have to. I right, tell you what. Tell you I want, what. I want. I want people that I know are a lot more fonder or maybe nicer <laughs> than I will be. They should go first because this man passed away. Oh yeah, we don't want to. We don't want to cause riots here. All right. Who's got something? I, you know, I didn't even ask anybody in terms of what your your outlook was. Who's got something nice to say about Stanley? Who who feels that, that? Oh, there you go, Roberto. All right. Uh, is is the credit he gets deserved? Yes or no? Yeah. Yes and no. Oh, yes and no. <laughs> well, because specifically, yes, he basically was participating in the creation of all of these characters, but also there's other creators like Steve Ditko, Jack Kirby, who also deserve a lot of the credit for the heavy lifting, specifically that happened in Marvel Comics in the early days. But the question we should be asking is, is this a Bill Finger situation? Hmm. So what happened with Batman, remember? Oh, yeah. All right. Okay. Well, and and, uh, I'm just going to interrupt you there for just a second, because uh, if we have mundanes listening, you may not be familiar with the sad and sorry story of Bill Finger. And not just Bill Finger, Jerry Robinson also. But Bill Finger and Jerry Robinson uh, were involved in the, uh, I'm going to say, in the co-creation of Batman over at National Periodical Publications, uh, DC Comics. So, um, in fact... Uh, if and just for laughs, if you if you want to laugh, Google uh, Bob Kane original Batman, okay? And what you what you get is going to look nothing like what Batman looks like. But this is what Bob Kane, uh, who is um, generally regarded as being the creator of Batman, uh, had drawn up, and um, he doesn't like. I said he doesn't look anything like. Uh, the Batman we have come to know. Apparently, a lot of that had to do with the influence of Bill Finger and um, Jerry Robinson also in terms of the Batcave and the Joker and Robin and, you know, a lot of uh, the... the, uh, Well, and again, the look of him, the cape, you know, the bat ears, you know, all that stuff. Um, You know, the ancillary stuff that, that now has become synonymous with... Batman. So, um, you know, what we're, what Roberto is saying is is that somebody else came up with some of this other stuff that this guy, Bob Kane, whose name is on everything, is sort of being credited for. Now, I'm sorry. So, um, is, 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 so you were saying, is this a Bill Finger type of situation? I don't think it is, but I want to hear what you guys have to think, say about it. Oh, okay. Hey, uh, Mike Lunsford? I, I think that the, the problem is and, and, and I saw it on social media too, that the, the adulation and just absolute praise that was lavished upon him. Honestly, that's exactly what Stan Lee wanted all the time, <laughs> every day. And like, Oh yes. Oh yeah. That's quite true. <laughs> we, so in, in the end, I mean, he, he got a great send off and like, I'm, I'm a big believer in you don't speak ill of the dead. However, I think that he took a lot more credit than was due, but to his point, to all of this, he is kind of the godfather of modern comics, and it yeah. was because of his expert marketing abilities. And God, this guy could sell just about anything. Like I, I think his work helped propel these artists and these writers to places that may not have, they may not have gotten without him. Now they were all talented in their own right, especially Kirby. Kirby was a genius and deserves every amount of uh, praise that's put upon him. But at the same time, I think it's you have to look at the big picture and the, and the and whole also, thing. Let's not forget specifically that they were dealing specifically with the fallout still in the 60s from the Comics Code uh, Authority fiasco, the introduction of the end of yeah. the Absolutely. And the, the mere fact that he was able to make comics that still had, in a way, social commentary 
it's amazing got away with that, specifically in terms of what was being pushed. But let me put it to this way. DC Comics would not, Dick Giorgiano and people like in the 70s would not have been doing what they were doing with, with Green Arrow and Speedy becoming an addict and things like that, or Green Arrow basically exploring the, uh, America with, uh, with Green Lantern, um, or uh, the exploration of Captain America basically during the 60s with Falcon. If it had not been for what the foundation that basically he set up, he made basically uh, Marvel Comics in a, in a place where basically the exploration of the character became more important than the powers. And I'm not a Marvel fan, but I have to give him credit for that. Hmm. All right. Well, you know who else isn't a Marvel fan? Is <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the illustrious, <laughs> <laughs> the illustrious <laughs> Julian Lytle. Now, in all fairness, Julian actually has a very good reason for not being a Marvel fan, because Marvel basically screwed him over, as they screwed over a bunch of people. But you yeah, know, that's that. yeah, that's a whole other story. So, Julian, um, uh, what, what 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 are your thoughts? Now, you've heard. And, and and I'll come in after you <laughs> with sort of what I think. But <laughs> so um, it's it's not it's not really a Bill Finger situation. Those are like completely separate type of issues because of the nature of of Bob. Bob Kane was just smart in terms of how he interacted with the with the company and how he wrote the contract. So they couldn't they couldn't give credit even if they wanted to. That was brutal. Um, Stan Lee. Man, Stan Lee just uh, accepted the fact that people was going to give him all the credit and didn't take any time to correct people. Uh, even if he was challenged, he would kind of try to ski away from it. Like the um, In Search of Steve Ditko documentary came on BBC like about 10 years ago. Oh, um, it, he, you know, the thing that the thing that bothers me with the because it's a press issue more than, than a Stan Lee issue at this time. Um, they're choosing to ignore the facts and you know the fourth state has a job they they could give the proper credit and what really bums me out even as people at work was giving me condolences for a man i'm not related to um is that yo steve Ditko died three months ago and no one cares yeah mm. just in 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 death just his life no one cares about steve Ditko. Uh, yeah, and Jack, one could argue that Steve Ditko, cert, I mean, at, particularly when it comes to Spider-Man, has every bit as much to do with uh, who Spider-Man, what what Spider-Man was, what he became as Stanley. I would I would say it's some at certain points more because that visual hits you as a child before you even care about how he's written. Yeah, I know. Uh, true that. Because if you're a kid, you never care about how he's written. But mm. the thing is, don't forget it specifically that it's the perception in terms of the artist himself are disposable. Look what happened with, I believe Ditko got ripped off by Roy Lichtenstein, that his artwork basically was used, uh, blown up, and basically used in Popan, and Lichtenstein never gave credit to Ditko. That's, a, I, that's an entirely different debate I don't want to get to <laughs> on the show. Well, because it, I, it's related, specifically my point that the artist tends to be treated like crap. It's, it's, I never understood why why the writers tend to get basically uh, across the board more respect than the artists because I mean come on Spider-Man looks the way he looks because of Nico and yeah. people have to acknowledge that for crying out loud mm -hmm. well I think Jack Kirby participated in the character design because I'm thinking of the um, yeah the the uh, cover to Amazing Fantasy 15 which was the debut issue I'm pretty sure that was uh, that was and it, you know, that was a, well, that was a Kirby and no no he didn't make up the costume he did a take 
Mm-hmm. And then Stan was like, that ain't going to work. And then Steve mm-hmm. basically just did everything. Oh, okay. And then Jack drew the cover off of Steve Ditko's design. Ah, okay. Because mm-hmm. he, he did an essay more... about what I did. Hmm. But you know, so see... respect more Kerry because he was also a writer. And that's the thing I wonder about. Uh, because... Kirby was not, a, not only a brilliant comic book artist, he was an amazingly brilliant uh, writer. That's true. And, mm-hmm. and I wonder specifically that they, the reason we hold Kirby in such high respect specifically is it's not necessarily the, the visuals, which were amazing, but it's because of the writing part. And mm-hmm. Nico, since he didn't do the writing, he doesn't get the same respect. Mm-hmm. He did some writing. Well, yeah, and I, I, you know, let's not lose sight of... Uh, and see, th- all right, this, this is what bothers me about all of this. And, you know, I would say that uh, Stan Lee is deserving of a whole bunch of credit. And, yeah. you know, it's been pointed out that he was certainly a great salesman. I mean, you know, unparalleled salesman. And he always had the desire to uh, to sell, to market, to license, to promote those characters. In fact, uh, in the um, it was really the late 60s, early 70s, uh, as soon as he got Roy Thomas in there, who was able to kind of step in and you know take over a lot of the writing duties and uh, become the editor-in-chief. In fact, um, I was talking to uh, Roy Thomas at a uh, Heroes convention, and uh, the, the, the position of editor-in-chief didn't exist before Roy wow. Thomas took it. In fact, Stan asked him, well, what, what do you want your title to be? You want it to be head editor? Should we do I mean, he ran down to, and Roy's like, okay, how about editor-in-chief? And in fact, apparently, uh, Roy Thomas had left. He had come, been working with uh, just a minute at DC before this Marvel uh, opportunity kind of opened up. But Stan went out to Hollywood, and he was, I mean, you could have licensed these characters for a song, but he was pushing them, and uh, he saw a, uh, this is the other thing, I mean, the the vision of the guy, because he saw that these things could be a lot bigger than they were. Now, he himself has said that he loved putting his name on stuff, and he tried to put his name on every kind of thing, you know, and um, the only thing that really bothers me, just to circle back around, uh, the the so-called Marvel way, okay, and that has been talked about ad nauseum at a whole bunch of conventions and events and, you know, which apparently the Marvel way, and this was uh, what uh, they, a bunch of them said, Stanley himself said at one point before he kind of backtracked on it, that he would uh, do a rough outline of the story, which he would basically breakdowns that he would give to Jack Kirby. Jack would draw the story based on the breakdowns that Stan gave him. Then he'd give the the completed pages back to Stan, who would look at them and fill in the dialogue. All right. Now, using that means, it seems to me that the, the, the artist has a lot to do with telling that story. And we've all seen examples where, depending on how well or how poorly... Uh, a, a the the story is written how well or how how well or how poorly the artist interprets it ba- is, is going to determine what he draws and you know we've had there uh, whole storylines have been changed based on what an artist thought the writer meant you know I mean yeah. to say nothing of uh, a, a method like this where the the artist is assuming a a major role in telling the story 
Instead, I mean, uh, Jack Kirby said, like, around the later periods, he was basically writing down a description of what was going on and even sound what the characters would say on each panel on the back of the art. So at a certain point, when it would, all the art would come back, all they had to do was look in the back hmm. and just wow. tell, tell like, an intern or production artist, that's what you, you know, the letterer, like, yeah, all the stuff is on the back. <laughs> so it's like and the, this, this is, and that's like the core part of Fantastic Four like the middle part like the the Black Panther coming to Galactus era like yeah. not the beginning part but like when there's money when like like Human Torch looking super fire like the most handsomest dude on earth and, and you know what I'm saying like he going out in space he using collages to make space and stuff like that in the negative mm-hmm. zone so I'm like you know, you know Stan Lee gets a he gets a lot of credit for that vision he gets a lot of credit for licensing and knowing that this could be X, Y, and Z and how to um, really embrace and control fandom in its infancy because fandom at that point has only been controlled by like pop music. So he was able to bring it in something else entirely different. He made an entire idea that Marvel and DC are like competing brands and for people to be so loyal to a brand, they call themselves a zombie. Okay, here's the question I want to ask. Would we have had? Kid you not with this question. Underoos without Stanley. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Underoos. You mean the uh, the popular superhero underwear yeah, of the late really 70s, early like, 80s? <laughs> I, I don't know. Didn't they have underoos and everything? By the time I was a kid, they had Bugs Bunny underoos and everything else. <laughs> like, well, think about it specifically. How comic books were perceived in the 1950s and early 60s, specifically in terms of the branding and the marketing and the selling of merchandise and things like that, in terms of how they were perceived and how the merchandise was and how towards the late 60s and towards the 70s it changed and they became more than just the funny books. Uh, Even Stan Lee talked about that too. Like He said that growing up in New York City, wanting to be part of the lit scene, like the literature scene of New York City turned its nose up at him. Like, it, they were not well-perceived. They were not, like, his career was a joke, basically, and that always bothered him. And it wasn't until years later that that got rectified to a certain degree. I mean, like, that that's kind of, yeah, like, kind of to your point, Roberto, is comic books were not something that was thought of as a respectful medium. Exactly. And I honestly feel that for all his defects, and oh, my God, he had a lot, he actually respected the medium. Respect to basically comic books as something that could be something more that he could, as as it has been said before, he had the vision of what it could be. Mm-hmm. You have to respect that. Mm-hmm. No, indeed. Hey, but that musical cue means that it's time for us to uh, take a short break. Of course, Fantastic Forum comes to you via WERA in Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM. We are a community radio station. That means, among other things, that we're non-commercial. We rely on the ongoing generosity of our underwriters, our sponsors, and listeners like you for the totality of the operation of the radio station. You can find out more about us if you visit the website at WERA.FM. So what I'm going to do, uh, we're going to pause momentarily while we acknowledge the invaluable contribution of those underwriters. We're also going to take the opportunity to promote a couple of other shows that are coming on later this weekend here on 96.7 FM. But stick with us because we'll be right back with more of this scintillating discussion about the life, the legacy, the career of Stan Lee. 
right after this. And we're back here on the Fantastic Forum on WERA 96.7 FM. I'm Ulysses E. Campbell. I'm your host. I'm joined in studio by the illustrious Julian Lytle. We've also got the redoubtable Mike Lunsford and Roberto Ortiz. Gentlemen, again, thanks so much for joining us. And we were talking about... The life, the legacy of Stan Lee. Of course, Stan Lee passed away earlier this week at the age of 95. And uh, we've been talking a little bit about uh, him and uh, what he brought to the Marvel Universe, what he brought to the world, basically, through his uh, showmanship, through his uh, ability to sell and promote uh, Marvel. One thing that I, I want to mention, and I think this is noteworthy because uh, certainly early in his career, uh, he was not that good at sharing credit. But one of the things, and I really credit Marvel with this particular innovation, uh, there was a point where comic books didn't have credits. I mean, you had no idea who wrote them. You had no idea who drew them. Uh, other disciplines like lettering and coloring and inking and stuff like that that was unheard of and marvel started doing it i mean you knew artie simic was the letterer you knew glennis ween was the colorist on some of these books you knew who the editor was um you know and and that was uh, that was an innovation what do what, what do we think fellas yeah I, I think um i think that was really smart to do because it also helped well, he was pushing in terms of how Marvel was disrupting the idea of what superhero comics was at the time. You know, this was he was also making up the whole myth that there was a a Marvel bullpen that <laughs> if you could get in there, you could see everybody working on Marvel books every time. It really, you know, there was like two or three offices right next to each other. It wasn't even that popping, but going by that record and going by the way he sold it in the little soapbox, you would think like, yo, the Marvel. The Marvel bullpen is fire. I got to get up in there, man. I got to see how they make these comic books. <laughs> well, and you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that, Julian, because uh, not only uh, the, the, the legend of the Marvel bullpen, but uh, they were publishing letters from the fans. Yeah. Uh, you know, the fact that you had Stan Soapbox, where on a regular basis he would talk about all kinds of issues i mean including racism and stuff like that i mean yeah. uh, you know thank you for bringing that up by the way mm, yeah well that was that was an important part of uh, the the life and legacy of stan lee and uh, you know i'm gonna if i'm gonna be critical of him i also feel like it's appropriate to to you know to give him credit where credit is due and uh, you know he he was he had in some ways the misfortune of uh, longevity you know i mean he became and this is one of the things that i said uh, a couple of years ago i mean he's the last guy who was in the room who was breathing and he could basically make up whatever story he wanted about what went on in there you know stan lee wasn't there to contradict sorry uh, jack kirby wasn't there to contradict him martin goodman wasn't there to contradict him you know but i also uh, think that 
Uh, a point, Roberto, that you made early on about the other people who made contributions. I mean, particularly uh, Steve Ditko and uh, Jack Kirby. Uh, Don Heck is another one who comes to mind who was there, uh, you know, right at the beginning. Um, you know, but particularly, you know, Ditko and Kirby because of the the way that they were involved in the conception of characters like Spider-Man and Doctor Strange and the Fantastic Four, you know, to yeah. a greater degree than, uh, you know, than some of the other uh, uh, artists were, you know. But, but here's the irony. Look how basically we're going full circle to the problems that basically Marvel had to fix, where all the solid artists are being, I'm not saying about comic books, I'm talking about all, are being pushed into uh, anonymity. Specifically, that the corporations basically are becoming and been trying to push themselves are more important than the creators and the artists. And I'm talking about new media uh, in terms of video games, in terms of uh, videos overall. And I think that what uh, uh, he realized specifically is that you, if you basically make it personal to the creator, they'll basically uh, give it their best. And I hope basically that that revolution that, that was brought back in the 60s can make a comeback in the present, where basically we start de-anonymizing the content that we're consuming in the video games and basically make it more individualized. Hmm. Basically, associate who did what. So, in other, wait, I'm sorry. So, in other words, uh, are you suggesting that maybe the video game industry could take a page from Marvel Comics in terms of? Uh, providing credit to the various way, yeah, creators and artists and uh, animators and so forth uh, oh, who yeah. were involved? Yes, because I feel strongly that, yes, the top creators, basically the, the, the head of the project basically gets the credit. But you don't know who they basically did the modeling, you don't know who the head did this. And it's not, if you're following this closely, yeah, you can eventually find out who did it. But the companies go out of their way to basically make it a challenge specifically to find out who they want. And I I feel that that's seeping into the media. And, I, and more than once, in the current generation of kids basically consume a lot of stuff. More than once, have to remind themselves, oh, you love this meme or you love this animation. Who did this? Who basically did this content? Who made you, who entertained you? And I think that we cannot... Um, I think he came at the right time to basically start making comic books into a more, how should I say it, personalized medium. Hmm. What do you guys think? Hmm. Am I full of well, well, all right, let, 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 let me start on this, because um, one thing that I want to make sure that we get in is the fact that, um, I mean, you know, because I, I had the privilege of meeting the guy a couple of times, but it wasn't, it was in passing. I never got to actually sit down and, you know, talk with him. And I wish... That the one question I had wanted to ask him was uh, how gratifying he found it today uh, after all these years of having pushed and promoted uh, Marvel Comics and the characters to finally have them accepted. Because, I mean, I'm, I was uh, uh, riding the Metro uh, the day after he passed away, and on that, um, uh, you know, there's a, a, a newspaper that the Washington Post distributes uh, for free. And Stan Lee's face was on the cover of this thing. You know, his wow. death was reported on uh, television stations and news outlets throughout the country, probably around the world. And, you know, certainly for uh, somebody who was 
uh, a comic book writer, you know, who didn't uh, get that uh, respect that he when he was working on him back in the '60s, possibly early '70s. I was just a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, all that. I was just wondering how gratifying it was. But um, I also want to get in the fact of disaffected co-creators uh, like Jack Kirby, for example. You know, and when Jack uh, left, because he he had he he had enough. And um, when he uh, jumped ship for uh, DC Comics, uh, one of the first things he did was, um, and this is another one you can Google, Funky Flashman. <laughs> because, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, well, there, there was a character in uh, a book that Jack Kirby wrote that was a, and, and you can find a lot of these sort of uh, Stan Lee. These are the uh, new guys. Analog, these yeah, are the you, new guys. Yeah. Stuff, the fourth world books. There you go, yeah. And, um you know, Funky Flashman was this sort of underhanded uh, huckster salesman type. You know, <laughs> and uh, he his 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 uh, toady was House Roy. You know, who was I gather wow. loosely based on Roy Thomas. And because Kirby was pissed, he was really pissed. You know that he did not. Um, you know that he wasn't getting what he felt he was due. You know, and I can tell you that uh, I personally was absolutely delighted when uh, I started seeing the names of some of the various creators appearing in these movies, you know? I mean, when all of a sudden, oh, um, you know, the uh, so-and-so created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, you know, Jack's name got up in there, depending, and now it, that that's pretty common in these Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. You can see Steve Ditko's name. I mean, they, they're, they're, given, they're given credit to where credit is due, and this just sort of goes back to the comics industry, and I've, I've railed about this for many years. It wasn't illegal, but because it, it was all work for hire, and these guys got paid a per page rate, and that's all you got. I mean, on the back of every check that Marvel Comics issued, it there was a little disclaimer said something along the lines of, "By signing this check, you acknowledge that you have been fully compensated." And I mean, you're signing your rights away every time you cash a check. On top of which, there's no paid vacation, there's no sick leave, there's no retirement. I mean. And again, it wasn't illegal, but it's it strikes me as particularly as as less than completely ethical when now today you've got these characters. Oh, and that's the other thing. No creators rights. You create a character, it's owned by the company. And so now these characters are making bazillions of dollars and uh, the creators who were responsible for them uh, see nothing. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah, you, you know, well, Stan was different because Stan got a contract. Stan had health insurance. Stan had a... Um, oh, Stan looked out for himself. Stan had a lot of things <laughs> Looked that, out um, for himself. That I think really bothered the people who helped build, build the infrastructure of Marvel. You know, this is versus, you know, saying John Romita Sr. and John Buscema and a lot of the, the guys who came in, you know, later, you know, after the the house was built, you know. You know, they probably have some of their own issues, and then you get to a lot of stuff in the 70s with, like, Neil Adams and and, and Denny O'Neill pushing pushing for better rights and stuff. But um, Yeah. Um, well, also, let's not forget specifically that there was a perception that uh, the content themselves that were creating was worthless. I heard horror stories specifically that Jack Kirby basically would give away pages of people who would just come in and visit the studio or, or even trash them. Oh, no, nah, he never got most of his art back. Marvel kept most of the art. 
and they would reuse it. They would reuse the the, the paper, or they would just shred it. So it's oh like the last, God. the the lot of the big fight when 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 Jack was older was him suing to get the art back, because this is in like the late eighties, early nineties. This is yeah, the stuff had begun to have value. Like that, he knew, he knew it's just he didn't he didn't have it anymore. Like he didn't have it. So that you know that that's a thing, and um, I think at that point in time. You know, Stan didn't have that much power within, you know, he didn't own the company. At that point, his his, his cousin sold it, and he was still there because he kept, you know, the train's running all the time, and he's a good selling. He's out there in Hollywood. Uh, but he didn't have, you know, he didn't have the power. But in the end, you know, when the family suing for stuff, he, he wasn't changing his story up either. So, you know, it was a long time some of these people had to fight, you know, uh, to get this to get the correct compensation for these billion dollar movies. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know I think, how much that weighed on him, but you know, his, his last year wasn't the best either. So I think that's probably what's really saddens a lot with his got, death. Don't, don't, let's not forget mm-hmm. basically he got wait, 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 more r- than one later in life. Well, that's true too, and we'll pivot back to that. But um, uh, Mike, you had something you'd wanted to interject. Yeah, I just, I wanted to, I wanted to point out that like, I think the story of Stan Lee, I mean, ultimately the guy, there's so many good stories about, about him too. Like, I, I can't tell you how many people I heard that met him at Comic-Con that got a chance to talk to him, to have him sign something like just incredibly gracious, incredibly nice and welcoming and like never seemed burdened by any of this. I, I wanted to state that up front. I think that things could have been handled obviously better. I mean, we've discussed it at great, at great length, but more importantly, I'm a big believer in, and if you're not learning something from other people's mistakes, then you're you're not doing your job right. And as somebody who's worked on comic books before, as somebody who wants to continue to work in that creative industry, it, it just leads, especially as me as a writer, like it's very, very, very vital to always give the people working with you credit, mm. always, mm. period. Mm. Because there is nothing worse than the other way around, doing all of the legwork and all of the effort and all of the behind the scenes stuff just for somebody else to take all of your credit. It is the worst feeling in the world. And as long, I think as long as we can all empathize with that as creators, as people who want to be creative and continue to work in an industry to entertain and, and uh, as you like to say, Yuli, elucidate others, um, <laughs> it's, Im- it's important That's that we word. make sure I love big words. I'm a big fan. Um, I, I, it's very important to make sure that you're giving all of the people who worked on this due, and not just accepting the limelight and just basking in the in the glow of the of the of the bright lights of the of Hollywood. You know, that's that's an important lesson to learn from this. Mm-hmm. Well, and I don't know. I, I don't know how well Stan learned that lesson. But the other side of that is uh, how many fantastic artists or writers toil in relative obscurity okay when you have a guy who can sell and absolute i mean i dare say i mean as good a writer as he was and he was he was a very good writer i think stan lee might have been a better salesman (laughs) and a better self-promoter than he was a writer which really says something and uh, without stan working out there in hollywood to like make these deals you know with uh your uh, studios, you know, to, you know, because they, there was, I mean, all right, the stuff was kind of rough at one point, but 
you had a Spider-Man TV series starring Nicholas Hammond. You know, you had the Incredible Hulk that was produced by Kenneth Johnson starring Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno. You know, you had uh, Captain America starring Reb Brown. That's actually very forgettable, but look it up. I mean, this is these are shows yeah, that were out there in the, uh, in the mid to late 70s. Uh, even before that, I mean, I think the first... Uh, licensing deal that uh, that Marvel made. Uh, it was with uh, Gantry uh, Animation, and they, it was 1965, I want to say, and they had uh, the Marvel superheroes, and it was uh, distributed via syndication. It was my first introduction to Captain Marvel. American yeah. Heroes, Mighty Shield. Yeah, exactly. They had Captain America and Iron Man and the Hulk and Thor, and uh, you know the the it was basically animated from the comics. And they used the stories from the comics, and you know, then that led to the Spider-Man cartoon uh, that was on television in the mid-60s. Uh, also, uh, the um, Hanna-Barbera Fantastic Four. So, I mean, he was putting Marvel on the map. He was making sure that, that people knew uh, about this thing. And, uh, you know, so sort of in a way, yeah, the people who were involved, you know, they... they got more out of it based on the fact that he was promoting it. What do you think? Well, yeah, those books sold. So whatever, you know, whatever issues I may have, you know, I don't even know. Well, I, you know, I know certain things in terms of certain creators he didn't always square up with in terms of personally. But, yo, it used to be DC was the king. Yes. Marvel, Indeed. Marvel is the idea. It's, the, it's, it's what's considered the GOAT. Like, like DC is at times is thinking of it as like the B squad, you know. If this is basketball, Marvel's the Lakers and the Clippers is DC. You know, they might have little blips. Batman is Batman, but everybody else be looking real sus to people. And those movies, they was able his method of the idea of having a one shared cohesive universe is such a great idea. That it's been copied in plenty of other things, like mm, mm-hmm. you know, our idea of Law and Order as a TV show, like there's a whole bunch Star of stuff, Trek. like Star you know, Trek Star Trek to a, to a degree. I think they they kind of came up around the same time some of those ideas was there, but like later on, in terms of multiple different TV shows connecting together, movies connecting together, and then the proof of concept was you know Kevin Feige was able to turn the original Marvel method of 1961 to about 1968 into like a super franchise that right now is the dominant Disney moneymaker. And the thing is that he had enough common sense specifically to start including Stan Lee on the cameos in the movies because it's an acknowledgement that yes, this meant, it's not only that the movies are Marvel movies, it's that I'm actually acknowledging the fact that I, I learned this method from this man. Yeah, I ain't gonna give him that credit because but, he was in Spider-Man, Spider-Man 2, Spider-Man 3, and X-Men movies. I ain't gonna give him that. I well, give you that see, see, the other thing that bothers me about that, uh, I mean, all right, he wants to do cameos, or they want to have him do cameos in the Avengers or the Hulk or whatever, that, that's fine. But when he showed up in that first Captain America movie, I was like, yo, you didn't have nothing to do with this. Exactly. It's like... <laughs> You can I, felt that, in there I felt that was a little inappropriate. <laughs> I, mean, oh. <laughs> I mean, just me personally, I felt that one was just a little inappropriate. You what can I tell you? screen and said, this is bull. <laughs> <laughs> I think I felt a way when I saw it. I yeah. saw it at home, though. 
Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm shocked you saw it at all. Good grace of act. We're gonna have to have a we're gonna have to have a show on uh, why you feel the way you feel uh, when it comes to Marvel comics because it's real. When I found out, I was like, oh, dude. You got screwed. Yeah. I don't blame you. I really don't we blame know you. This you know? Oh my, he's hardcore all this. I, I'm, he's been like this for years. Oh, let me tell you something. Somebody mess with your money. <laughs> I mean, that's that is no joke. You know, so um, yeah, it's uh, it, 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 I I think basically what it comes down to is it's complicated. Uh, you know, he was he was a man. You know, like uh, like other men in a lot of ways, and then in some ways, you know, certainly not. Um, is the world going to be poorer without him? Yeah, you know, probably. I mean, you know, but he's he's certainly he has made a tremendous impact, like like few people will. And um, I just I hope he can rest because you know, Roberto, as you pointed out, this the, it, it was not good for him at the end. You know, so uh, you know, hopefully now wherever he is. Uh, you know, Don Heck and uh, Ditko and Kirby aren't kicking his butt, you know, <laughs> or, or they didn't stand up at... Yeah. Kirby, Kirby basically was a tall guy. Yeah, well, I was going to say, or they didn't stand at the gates and say, no, he don't get in. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, look, um, that is all the time that we have for this episode. Uh, I uh, absolutely want to thank uh, all of my guests, of course, um, Ignorant Bliss, is the podcast where you can find the illustrious uh, Julian Lytle, and uh, you know you, you where you got to like where, call it out. Oh, where could where can they find it? It's, it's on you know all the places you can get podcasts: Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Podcasts. There you, you go, know, it's, it's ignorant bliss. Thank you. All right. Oh, and also um, the Great Geek Refuge uh, with our friend uh, the Redoubtable. Uh, Mike was yeah the redoubtable uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mike Ludsford. Uh, great geek, great, call out Great Geek Refuge real quick, man. Yeah, it is greatgeekrefuge.com. It's podcast, it's articles, it's all things geeky and nerdy. Right now, it's nostalgia November where we're just going back and looking at all the things that we loved as kids, whether it be toys, movies, video games. Uh, sports, all that stuff. So check it out. Mm-hmm. There you go. And uh, Roberto, if I were to give you, well, Roberto, he's a fantastic graphic artist. Uh, he's involved in all sorts of um, graphics. Yeah. Well, yeah. And um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, the the. Okay, I can't think. We got we got seconds left. Look, hey, uh, tune in. Uh, next week, same bad time, same bad station. Go to the website, fantasticforum.tv, and uh, the show also re-airs Wednesdays at 3. Have a great rest of the weekend, people. Thanks. Bye, guys.